Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 147, Love Day in Name Only. On September 14th, 1456, two months before the death of Edmund Tudor, the king and queen and a little prince arrived in Coventry, and the celebrations were without a doubt a lavish affair, right down to the heroes of history celebrating the arrival of, in quotes, Empress, Queen, and Princess Most Excellent in one person, all three. One character called her the highest lady I can imagine. This acknowledgement of the power now held by the Queen in England was matched with a pageant that ended with St. Margaret killing a dragon via a miracle. The Queen and the respect she was held, at least in Coventry, meant that this was a new center for her version of rule against the Lord Protector Richard of York, Coventry would actually be a point where Henry and Margaret would rule for much in the next year or so. And obviously, as you can imagine, after such an amazing reception, she would have definitely been positive towards it. The truth was at this point, Henry VI had been through two mental breaks. His appearance had fallen off so much that he was seen as a shell of his former self. He could no longer be trusted to rule, and more and more the day-to-day rule fell to his bride. And the queen darn sure did not want Richard as the heir apparent. So, as you can imagine, was pushing that her son, the prince, was to be continually put in a position where he would be considered the prince and heir apparent. And it was something that was always at issue for her. In London, Richard, on the other hand, was rewarding his Neville allies with, among other things, Somerset's Welsh landholdings. As protector, the first time, York was able to create an image of a stable, peaceful kingdom. He rewarded both sides of the conflict as long as they didn't actively oppose him, part of the reason why the Tudors received the rewards that they did. By late 1455, all of this had fallen by the wayside. His group was much more vindictive, and the death of Somerset meant they likely felt empowered, even with Henry still marginally capable of ruling. His attempts at ruling the government and country, however, were about to reach a roadblock for York. He ran into further issues in 1456 when he tried to return lands to the king's possession, which had previously been doled out to the nobility. Called the Act of Resumption, it would see lots of land removed from all of these nobles and being returned to crown control. Thus, of course, the money that would go with those particular 
lands would then end up in the coffers of the crown. But it was at the expense of people who were not exactly fond of losing wealth. Rich people, not fond of taxes any more than anyone else is. And especially when you have a period where you're not being taxed and you're not having possessions taken away, but you're given more and more to all of a sudden have the crown turn around and take it back, especially for someone who you supported to get this position, you can imagine that there was a lot of instability that would then come out of that. Keep in mind, of course, since the days of Henry III, the nobility had seemingly been on the edge of looking for any excuse to rebel against whatever was the next perceived crown overreach. Very rarely, actually, and only really as I could think about it under Edward I, was there a monarch who had control of his nobility before him and after him for quite a lot of years, basically until Henry VII, there isn't that kind of control and that kind of capability of keeping some of the more powerful nobles under control. And largely it's because there wasn't a lot of very successful, very strong kings. There was a usurper. There was all sorts of other reasons why this was happening. Sir Richard was playing with fire. Considering he was another one of these nobles himself, who had used his irritation over succession and the control of the levers of government and worked to push those out who legitimately, if badly, had been ruling. It was a dicey situation where you as the rebel are now leading and trying to tell everyone else not to do what you just did. Certainly there must have been more than a few nobles wondering whether they would be able to better profit from being the ones in charge. Which was something Richard's father, Henry IV, had to worry a lot about during his time as a usurper king. Sometimes it seems like the best idea for you is to be in charge until someone thinks that they would be good in charge. And then, if they have as much right to rule as you do, then you're in trouble. <laughs> and in a land like England, where there was a lot of people who had nobility and connections to monarchy, that they could link, or at least excuse, it becomes more and more problematic. One thing that we saw a lot in, in the early Welsh kingdoms where possession of land was divided equally was that that had a tendency to see various nobles going around killing other nobles to clear out some of the family tree so that they could rule unopposed. All of that, of course, is part of the issue here, is there's just a little bit too many people related to the crown at this point. And that will be alleviated soon enough. With all of this in mind, and with a dismal failure to convince anyone of his right to take their lands, Richard was then forced to resign on February 25th, 1456. He would make attempts to show his worth by trying to stop raids by Scotland and to move into Wales to put down the troubles there, and of course, as well, seize back his own lands and castles from Edmund Tudor, which he likely did not win him many more friends either. By the summer of 1456, the Duke of York was at his lowest point in a while. Most of his support had evaporated, and few trusted him with any sort of power base. As so often happens in politics, they love you until you start trying to tax them. By trying to likely get the financial house of the crown in order, 
Richard instead showed his bureaucratic understanding of the needs of government was in conflict with the realities of real politique, and thus he couldn't control what would happen as a result, and taking money from the rich doesn't always bode well from you in politics. Surprisingly, those very same people didn't appreciate it when you took money from them. As historian Dan Jones put it, in public, Richard was scorned. A display of five dogs' severed heads was erected on Fleet Street in London in September of 1456, with each dead mouth holding a satirical poem against York, that man that men all hate. As unsubtle as it was gruesome, you can imagine there is no way you could by any means, take it as anything but a complete and utter slam against your reign or rule, and certainly it would leave you with no sense of what of doubt against this kind of thing. And only one can imagine the thought process of the person who came up with this horrid idea by the autumn, all of York's allies were out of any positions of power, replaced by the Queen's favorites in London and Windsor. Once again, Margaret held the upper hand over the Yorks. She was back and better than ever. The hatred of the two had shared for each other was becoming very personal now. The Queen hated York for killing her friends and taking the King effectively prisoner. York, for his part, was an old traditionalist in a very medieval sense and felt very strongly that a woman should not be at the center of power. Likely as well, her French upbringing did her no favors in the eyes of York. After a hundred years' war, the French and English rivalry had never been stronger. And the reality of it is, at this point, other than Matilda, who reigned kind of in England as a queen, it was super unusual for a queen to have power in England. In fact, up to this point, no queen had had sole rule. That would only come with the Tudors. And so you don't have this tradition of strong women leading government in positions of power, and it bothered those that didn't agree with it. However, the queen was brought up in an area where her father had been thrown into prison, had been off fighting various wars, and her mother and sisters and herself had to take positions within the household, within the territory they ruled, governing it, and so thus would have been taught a very different lesson from that, one of power, one of political strength, and certainly if there's nothing else I can say about Queen Margaret, she has shown throughout these years that she knew what she wanted and was very determined to make sure that her demands, her power set was protected, even as her husband was hopeless to do it. After the death of Edmund Tudor, the king's half-brother and ally to the queen, this likely brought on by his incarceration at the hands of the Yorkists, that became another point of contention between the two. In April 1457, Jasper, 
was appointed as constable for Aberystwyth and Carmarthen, taking back lands that had been in the York's hands. This, obviously, was a thumb in the eye at Richard and would have boosted the Earl of Pembroke even farther up the chain of command. But the Queen was clever and at this point was not openly attacking Richard. She instead made him Lieutenant of Ireland, which meant he regained lands covering the losses he had suffered to Tudors and others in Wales and other places, and he was also a part of the defense of England during the summer of 1457 when there were fears of a French invasion was being planned. These rumors of French attacks on English soil would go along for a number of years during this period. Whether they ever bore any actual evidence is unlikely, but as we know, attacking the island of Britain to try and do any sort of invasion was probably nonsensical. The French themselves were in financial problems from, you know, the Hundred Years' War and everything that had gone on. They were overly focused in this period of trying to rebuild their situation. So after years of tension, reflection, the king slowly started to gain confidence, gain at least a portion of his health back. And so King Henry VI, in a sign that, well, one, his pious presence and desires generally overran common sense, and this was another one of those occasions. As well, it also showed that he still had some semblance of rule, even as both the Queen and Richard of York would likely not willingly do what he said under most occasions. On this one, it appears they had no choice. And if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, 
We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. He commanded that the Queen and York finally bury their dispute. He held then a so-called Love Day on March 25th, 1458. A date that, had this worked, might have been a significant day, maybe even a bit of a religious holiday, showing how mercy and forgiveness and God's love could repair all splits. You can imagine it would be sort of like a opposite version of... Uh, November 5th, something of a, of a different kind of presentation of government at peace. But instead, as you can imagine, that did not happen. And I think if you asked anyone in the UK what the importance of that date was, there would likely be a lot of blank stares. Because, of course, that date is not significant. And there's a reason for that, at least not significant from that perspective. Far from a show of love, both sides entered their fake demonstration armed to the teeth. Men from both sides at, were surrounding London and sat inside the city, very much ready for a rumble. The fact there wasn't one was actually the biggest surprise in this whole thing. The king might have fanciful dreams of his wife and uncle being able to get along under God's grace, but there was no illusion on anyone else's part. It might be best for the realm if they had gone along with it. Reality, of course, was very different, and too much had already occurred to suddenly change course, and too much blood had been spilt in this circumstance. The day, however, saw no violence. The Orchist offered to pay the financial indemnity to those families that were slain, had relatives slain at St. Albans. This included paying for church services that would remember and praise the dead, I wonder what Richard thought of him paying to have someone sing the praises of Somerset. I'm sure that filled him with love and respect entirely. The Nevilles and Percys also made signs of peace, agreeing to a ten-year truce in their family feud, and made nice with each other publicly that day. In what must have been a jarring sight, the various parties on each side were then joined up, Yorkist and Lancastrian, on either side, arm in arm, walking along in procession to St. Paul's Cathedral. This appearance of this procession in London must have been something to behold, and I wonder if the crowd taking this all in were laughing behind their hands, knowing how fake it all was. Hilariously, it was the Duke and the Queen, who were the, some of the last in line, arm in arm, with the King watching over the procession, walking within it, holding no one's arm, as it turned out, and effectively showing 
his complete lack of political understanding. And I'm sure both the Queen and the Duke were gritting their teeth the entire procession. As they arrived at St. Paul's Cathedral, they held a ceremony there. St. Paul's at this time was very different than the building from the post-Enlightenment rebuild, which stands today. The Norman build, which had taken about 130 years, was obviously much more Gothic and Norman in appearance. It had a massive spire, which would burn down some years later. And then, of course, the entire building would catch fire during the fires of London in 1666, which would then effectively force the rebuild under the current domed structure. Regardless, it was always a very impressive building, even at this point in time, and was considered one of the largest cathedrals in Europe. So it was a perfect place for national displays like this. But the reality of the king's attempt at reconciliation fell very flat, as all parties were very much unwilling to forgive or forget. As mentioned a couple of weeks back, one group of erstwhile combatants actually did put down their weapons and made real, lasting peace. The new constable, Jasper Tudor, made peace with Griffith Ap Nicholas, and the family of Griffith would wear the Tudor livery, including the three ravens of Dinfur, and the lilies representing the Queen's French heritage. They were, quite literally, Queensmen. Jasper spent the next few years before 1460 building up castles and towns now in his possession. He rebuilt castles and made sure defenses in his lands were stronger and much more sturdy. He had to know that the Welsh marches left him surrounded by Yorkists, and as much as they had been humbled, they likely still wanted to attack and take back these rich farm lands and resources that now were under Jasper's control. Back in England, the Queen had made her move in the autumn of 1458. She removed the last remnants of Yorkist control on power centers of government. It was a bold and dangerous move and one that risked the collapse of all of what had been worked for and the entire idea of peace between the two sides. The firing of so many nobles likely pushed them back firmly into the Yorkist camp if they had previously been wavering. And as 1459 arrived, the next target of the Queen was the second most powerful man on the Yorkist side, the Earl of Warwick. Warwick was the captain of Calais, the lone surviving English possession in France after the defeat in the Hundred Years' War, something that would be resolved only a few years later, when England would lose all its possessions. Calais was an area which still had a resource of men and material, but it was largely broke, and so, because the royalists didn't have the finances to keep funding Calais' defenses, it made it hard for Warwick to actually defend it. So he started to tr make some decisions, one of which was to go on the path of piracy. And he started to pilfer ships along the shores. As they traveled through the English Channel, he would attack various ones of various merchant fleets, 
and ended up getting into an all-out war with Spain, which saw many hundreds killed on the Spanish side, and as well as some on the English. He was using this to maintain his control, of course, but what this did mean was that he was generally starting to bring up the ire of the crown because the crown's looking at this going, why are you bringing us slowly but surely into conflict with other powers, especially Spain at this time, who are growing in power? This is at a point just before they start to make massive steps in finally pushing out the Moors and taking control of all of Spain and would then turn around and, of course, start to finance the uh, movement to the New World through Christopher Columbus and all that would come from that, making the Spanish Empire possible. So this is not the time to start messing with them. So for that reason, the queen would call him home to face the music, and of course it removed, if possible, the last loyalist in any major position to the Yorkist cause. And it'll be this conflict which will kick off the next chapter in our story and set us on a path for the real fighting in the War of the Roses to commence again. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also contact me via Twitter at Welsh History Pod. And as well, you can join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Also, we have a Patreon community. I am going to be adding some new content there this very weekend as I release this episode. So go check it out if you are able to donate. And I would remind uh, all my patrons to go check out the feed because I am posting stuff there this week. And hopefully we'll have some stuff up over the next few days. So with all of that said and done, thank you everyone once again. I appreciate all your comments, questions, and just general appreciation. It has been awesome and uh, I look forward to continuing on with this discussion in the coming weeks. So until then, we'll talk to you all later. Have a great day. Goodbye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.